You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. So Father, here we are. Here we are. Thank you so much for the testimonies that we just got to see of life change, salvation in Jesus Christ. And now we ask, Lord, we ask that by your spirit that you would take your word and that you would uh, press it down in our hearts, that you would be preparing our hearts even right now to receive what you have to say to us, that we would see continued life change, continued sanctification, more worship, more love, more growth. Thank you for the gift of your word. Lead us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles there, please open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And before we go there, Matthew 5, um, in today's topic of anger, anger, uh, let's begin by asking just a few simple questions to see if you and I ever get angry. Okay, so let's, let's, let's see. All right, so question number one, ask yourself, when I'm interacting with other people and it's not going well, all right, do I ever experience any of these physical symptoms? Do my, do my muscles ever start to get tense? Does my body temperature ever start to rise? Does my face ever start to become red or, or, or transform into kind of a scowl like this? Ever happened to you? Question number two. When I'm interacting with other people and things aren't going well, do I ever find myself thinking things like, I cannot believe this person? Or, or, what are they even talking about right now? Like, who do they think they, I I can't stand this person. Question number three, when I'm interacting with people and things aren't going well, do I ever raise the volume of my voice? Do I ever use sarcasm as a way to kind of insult people? Do I ever sigh loudly so everyone can hear like, oh. do, I, do I ever slam doors or put objects down on tables really loud or kind of stomp around so everyone can hear me? Do I, do I ever judge people's motives and say, I know why you did that. I know, I know, even though I can't see their heart. Do I, do I ever give people the silent treatment and, and kind of maybe for hours or even days walk around pretending like that person isn't even there. They don't exist. Do I ever call people names like, you're such a whatever, or you're so this And if you've you've answered yes to any of these, then chances are that you struggle with sinful anger just like the rest of us do. And there are some of us here today, and we occasionally struggle with sinful anger, but there are some of us here today, and we struggle with sinful anger a lot. A lot. For some of us here today, uh, we are angry so often that it just feels normal. And so we really even don't consider it to be a problem. 
But in Matthew chapter 5 today, Jesus says that sinful anger is a huge problem. And we're also going to see this today, that the presence of sinful anger in our lives actually indicates that there are other huge problems going on inside of us as well. And I'm believing that the Holy Spirit is able to move amongst us today to expose what each one of us needs to see and then to lead us forward and what it looks like to see increasing victory in our lives over sinful anger. And if you're here today and you're like, yeah, I want that. I want that. If you're here today and you, you long for the Lord to do a work like that in your life, then why not just take a moment right now to ask him to? Just you and the Lord. A moment right now and just ask him. Which leads us to point number one, which is this. It's a call for discernment. A call for discernment. I must search my heart for sinful anger. A call for discernment. I must search my heart for sinful anger. So again, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching to the people and now, and now he says this. Have a look with me at verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus here, he's referring back to the Ten Commandments. He's saying to the people, you've all heard it taught many, many times uh, that God has commanded, you shall not murder, which is the Sixth Commandment, right from Exodus chapter 20, you shall not murder. And everyone there would have been very familiar with this commandment and understood what it meant, they also would have understood this, that if you broke this commandment, there would be a severe consequence. Have a look again at verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So, so everybody there knew what the consequence for murder was because they had been taught what it was from the Old Testament scriptures. So for example, Genesis chapter 9 up on the screen, uh, God said this to Noah. He said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Or God said this to Moses in Exodus 21 up on the screen, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. God also said this to Moses in Numbers chapter 35 up on the screen, that if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. So in verse 21, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, everybody there would have known exactly what he was talking about. But look what he says next. Because now he says something that no one would have ever expected in verse 22. Look what he says. Jesus continues. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, and he's revealing to the people its full and complete and correct interpretation. So yes, you shall not murder prohibits outward acts of murder. Yes, it does. But you shall not murder also prohibits inward acts of sinful anger, 
both of these fall under the broad category of murder, whether it's the kind of murder that takes place on the outside or the kind of murder that takes place on the inside in the heart, both are prohibited by the commandment, you shall not murder. The apostle John refers to this in 1 John chapter 3 up on the screen. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother. Notice it doesn't say everyone who kills his brother is a murderer. It says everyone who hates, hate, that's in the heart, that's sinful anger. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So we can think of it like this up on the screen. That the Pharisees and the teachers and all of the people would have interpreted the commandment, you shall not murder, to mean this. You must not have the fruit of murder in your life. You must not. You must not have the fruit of murder in your life. And this is a correct interpretation, but it is a partial interpretation. Here's the full interpretation up on the screen. That the commandment do not murder prohibits both the fruit of murder in the life and and the root of murder in the heart, which is sinful anger. And this utterly destroys the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have been there and said, well, well, well we are innocent of, 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 uh, of sin with regard to the sixth commandment. It's, like, it's not like we've killed anyone. I'm innocent. And Jesus says, not so fast. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So sinful anger then is something that we must take very, very, very seriously. Now before we move on, here's a really important question. Is anger always sinful? Like, like is there ever such a thing as good anger? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is such a, a thing as good anger. Not all anger is bad. Sinful anger is bad. But righteous anger, righteous anger is good. So how can we know what kind of anger we have? Well, let's have a look at some examples of what righteous anger looks like up on the screen. First, let's look at the anger of Moses. So Moses, he is, he is up on the top of Mount Sinai with God. He has been given the Ten Commandments. He's now coming down the mountain. And it says, as he came down near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses is up on the mountain with God and the people are like, where did Moses go? And who is this Moses anyway? And let's make a calf and we'll worship the calf. And, and the calf, look at the calf that brought us out of Egypt. And they're worshiping this idol and dancing around. And it says, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So what is he angry at? Sin. Specifically, the sin of idolatry. Or how about the anger of Paul in Acts chapter 17 up on the screen? It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So as Paul is there in Athens, he's looking around, there's idols literally everywhere. People are worshiping all of these idols and his, his spirit starts to become provoked. He's irritated, he's angered by what he sees. 
What is he angry at? Sin. Specifically, the sin of idolatry. Or how about the anger of Jesus in John chapter 2? This is the first time that Jesus cleanses the temple. It says that in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So all of this is taking place outside the temple in the court of the Gentiles. This was an area that was set aside for non-Jews to come and worship God. But instead of, of the Gentiles being there worshiping God, it had been turned into a marketplace for people to come and to make profit. And verse 15 says, and making a whip of cords. You see, righteous anger is not out of control. Just picture Jesus, he sees what's happening, he sits down maybe, starts to make a whip. And what does he do with that whip? He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Out, out, out. And then he, and then it says, and then he poured out the coins of the money changers. Those exchanging currency, he takes the bags of coins, dumps it on the ground and flips over the tables. And then it says, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what is he angry about? Sin. Specifically, the Gentiles being prevented from worshiping God because of all the idolatry of money. Notice, all three examples have to do with idolatry and worship. So when we think about the difference between, okay, so what's good anger, what's sinful anger? Don Carson puts it this way up on the screen. This is so good. Look what he says. He says, our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger, not at sin and injustice, but at offense to ourselves. That's it right there. That's it right there. He goes on and says, in none of the cases where Jesus became angry was his personal ego wrapped up in the issue. More telling yet, when he was unjustly arrested, unfairly tried, illegally beaten, contemptuously spit upon, crucified, mocked, when in fact he had every reason for his ego to be involved, then as Peter says, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. From his parched lips came forth rather those gracious words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So we can define good anger or righteous anger like this up on the screen. That righteous anger is a feeling of grief and outrage over sin and idolatry. Righteous anger is a, is a feeling of grief and outrage over the reality of sin and idolatry, especially in our own lives. It's a feeling of grief and outrage over our own sin, over our own idolatry, especially. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, he says, be angry. And do not sin. Be angry for the right reasons. Be angry. Be righteously angry. Don't be angry for the wrong reasons. So if that's what 
righteous anger is and what's sinful anger? Well, here it is up on the screen. Sinful anger is this. It's a feeling of outrage when we don't get what we want. Ultimately, that's what it is. It's a feeling of outrage when we don't get what we want, which is often triggered by people. People not doing what we want. It's, it's, it's people not acting the way I want or not doing what I want or not saying what I want, not respecting me the way I want, not loving me the way I want, not agreeing with me the way I want, not giving me what I want. So I get angry. And about that kind of anger, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So because sinful anger is so important to God, it's such an important issue, because sinful anger is something on some level we all struggle with, because sinful anger is the subject of our text today, we can't move on without first understanding biblically what sinful anger is, where it comes from, and what we're supposed to do about it. The issue is just way too important. And so one place in the Bible where God very clearly explains to us what sinful anger is, where it comes from, and what we're supposed to do about it is James chapter 4. James chapter 4 up on the screen. James says this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What's the cause of that? That's a great question. What's the cause he says, is it not this? In other words, here it is. That your passions are at war within you. What does he mean by that? Verse two. You desire and you do not have, so you notice, murder. You desire, that means like you strongly desire something. You want something and then you can't have what you want. That, that person isn't giving you what you want or maybe that person's getting in the way of you getting what you want. You want it so bad, you can't have it. And so you murder, he says. Sinful anger in the heart, you murder. He says, you covet. Now that's an interesting choice of words. You covet, that's a worship word. Colossians chapter three says that covetousness is idolatry. So, he, so he's, he's saying it's not just a desire. It's not that you just desire this thing. You've wanted it, but now it's crossed the line and it's become worship. Your want has become worship. You're worshiping that thing and you can't obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. So why is it then that we experience the red face? Why do we experience the tense muscles? Why do we think to ourselves, I can't stand that person, or who do they think they are? Why do we find ourselves raising the volume of our voice, or being sarcastic, or slamming doors, or giving people the silent treatment, or calling people names? Why do we do that? Here's why. Because of the idolatry of our hearts. And for all of our visual learners, like myself, I'm a visual learner, here's what James is saying up on the screen. He's saying, sinful anger begins at the level of idolatry. I want, I want that thing. I want it too much. It's crossed a line from wanting to worship. It's idolatry. And then here's what happens up on the screen. Inevitably, sometimes, 
I'm not going to get what I want. I can't have what I want, which then leads to this up on the screen, sinful anger. Whether it's the kind of sinful anger that's like a volcano and erupts, or the kind of sinful anger that's like a boiling pot. It's crucial that we understand that the cause of our sinful anger is idolatry. But we need to see one more thing as well. We need to also see what's behind our idolatry. Because James tells us exactly what it is just a few verses later up on the screen. Verse 6, James chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what ultimately is behind our idolatry and our sinful anger? Here it is. It's pride. It's pride. And here's how all of this fits together up on the screen. Sinful anger begins with pride. Pride is a heart where self is on the throne. Maybe you can see the, the crown there in the graphic. The self is on the throne. That's what pride is. Pride is a heart where self is on the throne, where everything becomes about me. And the phrase that echoes in this heart is, hallowed be my name. My kingdom come. My will be done. Which leads to this up on the screen. Idolatry. When self is on the throne, it leads to idolatry. It's all about me and I want this. But then I can't have what I want. And that's when we see sinful anger. So to those who walk in sinful anger... Jesus says this in verse 22. Verse 22, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if we are sinfully angry with a brother, with a brother. So in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus refers to brother, it's, it's other believer. When we are sinfully angry with other, other believer, a brother, and then in our anger, we insult our brother or sister. And that word insult there means to insult their intelligence. So if we, if we are angry with a brother or sister in Christ and, and, and so we say to them, you're so stupid. Or if in our sinful anger we call their character into question, that's what the term you fool refers to. It's essentially saying to someone that their character is like someone who doesn't know God, you fool. If that's what we do, then here's what Jesus says will happen at the end of verse 22. That person, he says, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, Jesus is saying that sinful anger is deserving of God's judgment. We need to allow that to sink in. This is how seriously God takes sinful anger. So here's an important question for us. 
What happens if you are saved in Jesus Christ and then you get sinfully angry? Because this is something that happens to all of us, doesn't it? Like, what, what happens then? Is Jesus saying that if you get sinfully angry, then you lose your salvation? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. The Bible is very clear on that. But here's what we need to understand. That every time we become sinfully angry, we are deserving of God's judgment. Which means that you and I are deserving of God's judgment probably thousands of times over for our sinful anger. And listen, this is why Jesus came. He came to rescue us from our sin, including all of our sinful anger. Because when Jesus was crucified, here's what happened. Every sin of anger that we have ever committed or ever will commit was removed from us and placed on Jesus Christ on the cross by God. And then the wrath of God that you and I deserve for all of our sinful anger, the hell of fire, was then poured out upon him in full. The eternity of God's judgment that you and I deserve for our sinful anger was poured out upon Jesus until it was finished. So that, so that you and I, who are so often guilty of sinful anger, have now been declared in Jesus Christ innocent of all sinful anger forever in the court of God because of the suffering of Jesus Christ on that cross. And this right here is at the very heart of how we overcome sinful anger. Because we don't overcome sinful anger by just trying really hard to overcome sinful anger. We overcome sinful anger by going to the cross. Again and again and again. We overcome sinful anger by seeing the creator of the universe allowing himself to be crucified for our sinful anger. We overcome sinful anger by seeing him, the all-powerful one, crucified, suffering in the greatest possible way for our sinful anger. Seeing him, the preeminent one, crucified, humbling himself in the greatest possible way for our sinful anger. The glorious one, the son of God, crucified, loving us in the greatest possible way as he pays the price for our sinful anger. And as we look to him and we see his perfect humility and then we look to ourselves and we see our hearts of pride, as we, as we look to him and we see his perfect love on that cross, and then we look to ourselves and we see all of our sinful anger. Here's what happens. We stop thinking that we're something. We stop thinking that we are something because in the light of his greatness, we see that we are in fact nothing and that he is everything. And that's when, that's when our kingdoms start to crumble. That's when we say to God, no, 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 hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's when, that's when we experience an outpouring of his grace. 
because he gives grace to who? Who does he give grace to? The humble. The humble. He gives grace to those who will surrender their kingdoms. So as we draw near to God and surrender, God draws near to us with his grace. Here's what that looks like up on the screen. Again, it begins with surrender. It begins with Jesus Christ being exalted to the highest place in the heart, exalted to the throne of our hearts as Lord, which then leads to this up on the screen. The phrase, the refrain echoed in that heart is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Which then leads to this up on the screen, an outpouring of grace as we draw near to God in surrender and then he draws near to us with his grace, that's when we say, Lord Jesus, you are everything. You are the treasure, not idols. You are the treasure, not idols. Which leads to this, a heart that says, now help me to live for you and not myself. Help me now to live for you. You're worthy. Help me to live for you and not myself. And a heart that is surrendered to Jesus and treasuring Jesus and living for Jesus will not be a heart that is filled with sinful anger. So ask yourself, how often, in all honesty, do I get sinfully angry? Is it several times a day? Maybe several times a week? And when I get angry, who is it that I'm usually angry at? Is it a neighbor? Is it a boss? Is it a coworker? Is it one of your children? Is it your spouse? We can think of it this way up on the screen. When I get angry, who am I usually angry at? How would you fill in that blank? When I get sinfully angry, this is who I'm usually angry at. Maybe even ask the Holy Spirit right now. Show me. When I get sinfully angry, who is, who is it that I'm usually angry at? And then Why? Why do I get angry at this person? Is it because I want them to act a certain way or do a certain thing or do what I want or say what I want or respect me more or love me the way I want or agree with me or give me what I want? This is the person I'm usually sinfully angry at and here's why. What does that look like in your life? Because here's the answer. We need to go back to the cross again because that's when our kingdoms begin to crumble. That's when our idols fall apart as we see that Jesus is everything and that's when our sinful anger begins to fade away. And maybe for you, today is the very first time that you have ever come to the cross Maybe, maybe today's the first time that you're seeing that sin leads to judgment but that the cross leads to forgiveness. 
And if you are here today and the Spirit of God is working in your heart and life and you are seeing Jesus Christ crucified on that cross for sinners like me, know this, know this, that he died for you also. He died for you also. And today you can can reach out and place your trust in him. You can reach out and say, Lord Jesus Christ, would you forgive me? I, I believe in what you accomplished on that cross. I believe it's for me. Would you save me? And he will. He will. Here's one more question for all of us. What if in our sinful anger we've done some things? We've said some things. What is the Lord calling us to do about that? Well, that leads us to our second short and final point, which is this, which is a call to action. It's a call to action. I must prioritize reconciliation. A call to action. I must prioritize reconciliation. Jesus now gives us some very specific instruction on what to do if we have sinned against other people. So again, maybe we've said some things, we've done some things. As you think about that name that you filled in the blank with, Maybe you've said some things and done some things that you shouldn't have done and we can't go into the past and fix it. What are we supposed to do now? Well, Jesus tells us. And he does so by giving us two illustrations. The first involves worship at the temple. The second involves a legal dispute. So let's have a look at that first illustration. Have a look at verse 23. Jesus says this. He says, so if you're, you, you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So here's what Jesus is saying to the people. He's saying that if, you, if you're bringing your offering to the temple and as you're, you're there and you're gonna make your offering to the Lord, you remember, you remember that you've sinned against someone. You've You've done some things. Here's what you're supposed to do. Leave. Just leave. Go. Find the person that you've offended and be reconciled. The priority in that moment is not to engage in outward forms of religious practice. The priority is to find the person that you've sinned against and to be reconciled. So application for our context might look something like this. We come to church and we're, we're sitting in the service and at some point in the service, I remember I've sinned, I, I, just, I sinned against that, I, really, I offended that person. In that moment, Jesus says, verse 24, leave. Leave your gift before the altar and go. Be reconciled with your brother and then come back and offer your gift. In other words, the priority is not to sit through the rest of the service. The priority is to go and be reconciled. And so why is that? Why such an urgency? Well, here's why up on the screen. Again, Ephesians chapter four. uh, four. Paul says, be angry and don't sin. Be angry for the right reasons. Don't be angry for the wrong reasons. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve it quickly. Resolve it quickly. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, unresolved conflict 
gives the devil an opportunity to come in and create further division and more and more damage to relationships as he comes alongside with his lies and his schemes and his plans and all his whispering. So if we've sinned against another believer, the priority is just go, go and be reconciled. So what does that look like exactly? What does it look like to be reconciled? Well, here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like going to someone and saying, okay, uh, you know the other day when I made that mistake, sorry. Reconciliation is not sorry. Jesus calls us to so much more than sorry. Here's what it looks like to be reconciled up on the screen. First, four R's, we have recall. Recall, in other words, describe the situation and the offense. Not, not generalities, like remember that thing, but specific. Remember when I said that to you or I did that specific thing? Recall, describe the situation and the offense. Number two, rename it by calling it what it is. Sin. It wasn't a mistake. It was sin. Remember when I said that thing to you? I sinned against you. I sinned against you. Number three, request. Request, ask for forgiveness. I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me for my sin? Not sorry for my mistake. Would you please forgive me? I sinned against you. And then restitution. This, this, this may be appropriate. So remember when I, I said that thing to you and I sinned against you in that way? Would you please forgive me for that? And then remember how I got out of your car and slammed the door and broke the window? Let me pay for that. That may be appropriate. So reconciliation may not mean that we're all now best friends, but what it does mean at a bare minimum is that there's no animosity, there's no unforgiveness, and there's no opportunity for the devil. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, what if I go to them, though, and they just tell me to get lost? Because I think that's what they might do. Well, Romans chapter 12, Paul says, if possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so, and so if you've done some things and you're like, I don't think that person would want to see me or hear from me, and, or maybe I, I, I tried and things didn't go well, listen, life can be very complicated. So if you have a complicated situation, you're looking for wisdom, I would, I would invite you to just make, make, make an appointment with one of our pastors to come in to talk about your situation, to get some biblical next steps and some wise next steps because reconciliation must be our priority. It must be. Lastly, Jesus moves on from the illustration of worship to an illustration of a legal dispute have a look now at verse 25. Verse 25, Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and then you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So in this illustration, there are two people, one person owes the other one money, and they, they happen to bump into each other on the way to court. Okay, Jesus says, uh, if you owe someone something, deal with it now, before you get to court. Resolve it now, before you have to stand before the judge. And here's why. Because you're guilty. You know you're guilty. 
The, the other person knows you're guilty. Pretty soon the judge will know you're guilty as well. So why bother going to court? Just pay what you owe. Resolve the situation now. Because if you don't, then verse 25 is going to happen. Your accuser is going to hand you over to the judge. The judge is going to hand you over to the guard. And then you're going to be put in prison. Because in the ancient world, if you owed someone a debt and you wouldn't pay it, then the judge would put you in prison until you paid your debt. And Jesus is saying that if you've sinned against someone, it's like you have accumulated a debt with them. And that debt is not just somehow going to go away. Time does not heal all wounds. In fact, sometimes time makes things way, way worse, which is why Jesus says, go now, go now, be reconciled. But sometimes we don't do that, do we? In fact, sometimes instead of going to be reconciled, we go, but we go because we want to mount a defense. We go because our inner lawyer has, has risen up inside and has created a brilliant defense for ourselves. And often we do this up on the screen. The first thing we, we deny. We deny, we say, well, you know, like, I don't think I really did anything wrong. I can understand why you would think that I did something wrong, but I don't think I really did anything wrong here. Or we dismiss. We dismiss the impact of our actions. And we say, you know, could it be maybe that you're exaggerating a little bit? Could it be maybe that, that you know, you've kind of taken me all out of context and this really isn't such a big deal? And here's the big one. Deflect. Deflect where we start blaming others. We're in the wrong, but we start blaming, we start pointing at them and say, okay, well, well like, I, under, I get what you're saying, but, but what about you? What about all the stuff you do? What about, what, let's talk about you now. And this right here is the reason why so many friendships end, why so many marriages fall apart, and why so many churches split it's because instead of pursuing reconciliation, we deny, we dismiss, we deflect. And Satan stands back and he laughs and he grabs hold of his opportunity to fan into flame more division and more division and more division. That's why in verse 26, Jesus says, truly I say to you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, if we refuse to be reconciled, there will be a massive cost. There will be a cost to your relationship with that person. There will be a cost to your own conscience as you know you're walking in disobedience. And there will be a cost to your relationship with the Lord as you walk in disobedience and just walk further and further and further and further away from him into darkness. So we can think of it this way. If we've sinned against someone we really only have two options. Here's the first one. I can obey the Lord and go and be reconciled and walk in the blessing of that. That's option number one. Option number two is I can walk in disobedience. I can dismiss and deflect and deny and then walk in the cost of that. Those are our two options. And Jesus says, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. So ask yourself, is there anyone in my life that I've sinned against and the Lord's calling me to go and be reconciled? 
Is there anyone in my life I've sinned against them, I've offended them, and the Lord is calling me today to go and be reconciled? Because if so, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's walk in the blessing of that and go and be reconciled. So there are two calls that have been given to us today. A call for discernment, to search our hearts for sinful anger, and then a call to action, to prioritize reconciliation. These are the things that the Lord Jesus Christ is calling us to do, but not apart from his grace, not apart from his strength, not apart from his help, not apart from his grace. So let's pray together now and ask him to help us to purge our lives of sinful anger, and to help us to prioritize reconciliation. Let's pray. So Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that's been given to us by your son through the spirit of God as we hold these books in our hands and are able to hear this this sermon on the mount. And you are giving us clear instruction today. Thank you. Thank you for insight. Thank you for direction. Thank you for for leading us in the way that we should go. And so, Lord, now we pray for your grace. We pray for your strength. Would Would you lead us so powerfully in the way that we should go? Would we go back to the cross again? And would our kingdoms crumble? Would our idols fall away as we see that you are everything? And would we surrender? Thank you for the cross. Thank you for this gift of salvation. And thank you that you are working in our hearts and lives even right now. In Jesus' name, amen.